they're not just trying to burn the system down. They have a very specific vision and they're fully committed to it. Once you look beyond the quote-unquote chaos in Washington, what you see is the work not of nihilists, but of committed ideologues fully determined to impose their reactionary vision of what America should be on as many people as possible. They do not have majority support for that reactionary vision that they want to impose on the country. The question of whether or not a minority can hold on to power that entirely depends on how far the minority is willing to go to stay in power. Welcome to episode 143 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we welcome historian Thomas Zimmer back on the show to talk about the insurrectionist takeover of the House, whether the GOP is just a bunch of buffoons and chaos agents, whether the GOP is falling apart, moderating, or just getting started. Is it all just nihilism? Why we need to look at what's happening at the state level to understand the fascist agenda, Trump, DeSantis, and more. But first... If you appreciate the show and want to help us reach more people who want to refuse fascism, go be a gem and write a review and drop five stars wherever you listen to your pods. Of course, after you listen to this episode. Please tell the people out there in podcast land why you listen and why they should too. Subscribe, follow so you never miss an episode. And of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media. There is a lot to say about the lynching in Memphis of Tyree Nichols by the police, but I'll try to keep it to three points. Before those three points, I want to extend all our love and our heart to the family of Tyree Nichols. Enough is a fucking enough. One, the fact that this brutal murder was committed by Black police officers in a city with a Black police commissioner shows, in my personal view, the systemic nature of this white supremacist violence, that you can't get rid of police violence that kills over a thousand people a year without getting rid of this whole capitalist imperialist system that needs police violence. Two, while that's my personal view, that same set of facts is leading the fascist media down a gleeful path of blaming it all of this on, you guessed it, black folks. Fascist Fox News is setting the tone with guests claiming that this is simply quote-unquote black-on-black crime, that there couldn't possibly be a racial dimension to this, and even blaming this murder on things like quote-unquote diversity training, as always, using this murder to justify and advance their genocidal program. Three, it is also extremely telling that the police nationwide are so much more ready to violently put down the largely unorganized, overwhelmingly nonviolent protests in random cities that have erupted in the aftermath of the release of the video of this lynching than they were to protect the Capitol building, the seat of federal power, from a well-funded, highly organized, and popularized 
armed insurrection as part of a fascist coup led by the president and former generals on January 6, 2020. Thomas Zimmer just published a piece about the murder of Tyreek Nichols on his subsect that I highly recommend. Mondaire Jones actually made a pretty succinct observation that can transition us to our next topic. He tweeted, quote, if you think the Memphis police officers had to be white in order to exhibit anti-blackness, you need to take that AP African-American studies course, Ron DeSantis, just banned, end quote. In today's episode, we talk about the fascist laboratory that is Florida under the tutelage of Governor Ron DeSantis, but I have to just emphasize that last week, on top of DeSantis banning the high school AP course on African-American history, book bans have been accelerated to the point that teachers in at least two counties have had to shut down classroom libraries, making unvetted books, all are unvetted, inaccessible to students until each book is vetted by a media specialist. It's what they call librarians in the state of Florida, who has been trained in the fascist-approved course or risk felony prosecution. As Judd Legum wrote on Popular Information when he broke the story last Sunday, quote, the new policy is part of an effort to comply with new laws and regulations championed by Governor Ron DeSantis. It is based on the premise promoted by right-wing advocacy groups that teachers and librarians are using books to, quote-unquote, groom students or indoctrinate them with leftist ideologies, end quote. The law that this is conforming to requires, quote, each book made available to students through a school district library media center or included in a recommended or assigned school or grade level reading list must be selected by a school district employee who holds a valid educational media specialist certificate, regardless of whether the book is purchased, donated, or otherwise made available to students, end quote. Chilling shit, right? It makes sense that in this fascist state, the message being sent is that books are dangerous, they must be surveilled. Anything that challenges white American male Christian supremacy must be erased. LGBTQ folks' very existence must be erased. Slavery and genocide that are the foundation of this country's history must be erased. So too the stories of people who rose up in defiance of white supremacy, all with the force of the law and power of the state behind it, while simultaneously arguing in court that this is not what they are trying to do that this is not what they're doing. Now is the time for every educator and educational leader to disobey, to defy, to refuse fascism. The kids are watching. What will we show them? I want to shout out the good folks over at Foundation 451 and Awake Bravered Action Alliance who held a street theater protest and mock book burning near Melbourne High School in Florida to protest the book bannings they did this yesterday. Adam Tripp, founder of Foundation 451 and a Braver County teacher, said at the protest, quote, you want to ban the books? I'm giving them away. You want me to be quiet about it? Give me a megaphone. You don't like this book? Can I get 50 copies of it, please? And we're going to give them to kids with parent permission, end quote. We need a lot more Adam Tripps. See more in the show notes. And we... All of us, regardless of where we are, we got to have their backs. I recommend re-listening or listening for the first time to episode 122, our August 14th interview with Henry Giroux on the Nazification of American Education for more on this topic. 
not unrelated to this week's interview, I wanted to address some feedback we got about something I said in a previous episode. In passing conversation with Paul Street and Anthony DiMaggio, I commented that as a society species, we could do better than democracy. And I received a question about that. I love this kind of feedback. So thanks. So very briefly, I wanted to address it in two parts. But first, again, this was just my personal opinion, okay? One, in the context of that conversation, I was somewhat derisively referring in shorthand to bourgeois democracy, the whole apparatus of our current day democracy that serves capitalist imperialist empire. But secondly, and relatedly, when we get down to its essence, democracy and dictatorship are always bound up together and bound up with class rule. In Plato's Republic, both reflecting and idealizing the societies where democracy was first practiced and espoused. You had democracy amongst the slave owners that was bound up with dictatorship over the enslaved. Today, you have democratic institutions that are inseparable from the generalized dictatorship of capital over all of our lives. Under socialism, we'll have democracy among the majority of people and dictatorship over the bourgeoisie in order to overcome millennia of oppressive and exploitative relations. When I say we can do better than democracy, I'm talking about getting beyond classes, beyond the need for dictatorship or democracy. To be clear, again, my opinion only, and you can rah-rah for capitalism, for classes, for all that, and join in in refusing fascism right now. With that, Here is my interview with Thomas Zimmer. Today, we are talking about the insurrectionist takeover of the House. To do that, I am happy to welcome back to the show, Professor Thomas Zimmer. He's a historian at Georgetown University. He's a contributing opinion writer for Guardian US. He's the host of US Democracy Pod and has a newish substack titled Democracy Americana. If you follow him on Twitter, you are smart. And if you're not, get on it. He is one of our most frequent guest requests. So I am really excited. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me back on. I feel very flattered that people are actually requesting me to come back on. I appreciate that very much. The interview that you did with Coco, even now it's been a really long time since mm. people have been listening to it and we want to hear more. So it's a good thing. Well, I want to just start with just a really simple little question. We have headlines about institutional anarchy, House Republicans struggling, questions about their ability to govern. And you have a Democratic Party that thus far has treated the current House Republicans as no different than any other party makeup. Some look at this and say that it signals the weakening or collapse of the Republican Party. I would say that those people who say that don't know what the GOP exists to do. But what does this insurrectionist takeover of the House tell us about the moment that we're all in right now, about who the GOP is and where they want to take things? So I think there's been in general, a little too much focus on the chaos. Not saying there hasn't been chaos. I mean, look, we all remember the 15 tries it took for them to finally elect Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House. I'm just saying it is, I guess, tempting to look at that and say, oh, like, how dangerous could these people be? It's just a bunch of chaos agents, a bunch of clowns. They're not ever going to get their act together. It's maybe annoying. It's kind of 
shameful maybe in the eyes of the world, but it's not dangerous, right? It's just a bunch of clowns and they basically just going to be infighting and this is what we're going to get from them. I think what that underestimates is first and foremost, look, there's just no natural law that democracy can't be brought down by a bunch of clowns. That's just not a thing, right? There's no higher power saying, oh, if there are a bunch of clowns, instead of say, a super cunning cabal of genius, evil guys, whatever, then democracy is going to be fine. That's not how it works. The chaos itself, we're seeing it right now, that alone might be enough to sabotage the country, sabotage the world economy. That alone is bad already. And then more importantly, I think it is true that the current Republican House caucus is very unlikely to ever like gel into an effective governing machine. But that's also not what they are trying to do. That's not what they're for. There are very few people in this caucus that have a proper legislative agenda or any sort of discernible interest in public policy making. That's not why they're there. In fact, they're super happy to just paralyze government and then turn around and say, see, we told you, Washington is bad and government doesn't work. Even the chaos in itself is already dangerous. And then you have to combine that. And I think that's where the focus on the chaos is kind of misleading. You have to combine it with what else is going on in the country. You can't just focus on Washington, D.C. You cannot just focus on the House of Representatives. You have to also look at what's going on in the states. You have to look at what's going on in the Supreme Court. I think it's best to think of what's going on as a broader reactionary counter-mobilization happening against the country moving closer to becoming a proper democracy. And that counter-mobilization has different arms. It has a political arm, and the part of the political arm that's in the House of Representatives is just there to just obstruct, basically. That's the task. That's what they're there for. But on the state level, we are seeing something very different. We're not seeing chaos. We're seeing a very deliberate very systematic, very successful counteroffensive, reactionary offensive against civil rights, against the post-1960s civil rights system. And again, if you just see the chaos and if you think, oh, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, these people are clowns, what is there to worry about? You're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is very concerning, I'd say. When you say that they're not there to do, did you say governance? I Yeah, like, yeah, they have no actual like proper legislative agenda. The Republican Party hasn't had any interest in actually tackling the country's most urgent problems via public policy. That's not how they look at the world. They don't look at here are the problems, the 10 most urgent problems that the country is facing. Let's find some proper public policy solutions and then put those into legislative form and pass them in the House and write bills. That's not what they're interested in doing. To the extent that they are interested in a functioning House, in a functioning Congress, it's just to do their kinds of like completely nonsense investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop or impeaching Joe Biden. That's what Marjorie Taylor Greene needs a functioning Congress for. But she does need to pass proper bills. I mean, they've just passed bills that have no chance of 
becoming law, they passed this IRS bill where they're just stripping the IRS of all the funding that was supplied in the Inflation Reduction Act from the summer. And then they're claiming they're stopping the army of 87,000 heavily armed IRS agents that no one ever talked about any of this nonsense. That's not proper legislation. That's not public policymaking. That's not trying to solve any problem. That's just, you can call it a messaging bill or whatever. They're just signaling to the base, hey, look, we're fighting back against the leftist takeover of our institutions. It's not serious public policy. That's not what they are interested in. That's not what they're there for. It's quite remarkable, honestly, to have one of the two major parties so completely uninterested and also so completely unable to engage in any serious public policy discussion. It's remarkable. And it's a complete disaster for the country because it's not like America doesn't have any serious public policy issues to tackle, but they're not interested in that. I would push back slightly and say that I think that there are public policy that they're interested in. It's not aligned with the will of the people or the interests of the people or the majority, let alone what's popular. There's what's right. But they are interested in policy. They're interested in policy that promotes the most vicious anti-women legislation. They're the most anti-immigrant platform, the most anti-LGBTQ platform. Not you, but there are people who are like, they have no politics. They have no, Oh yeah. they have nothing. They just want power. They do have aims, which is not to say that they want to engage in public policy as a typical party. They have no interest in doing that. And I think that's the point that you are making. I just wanted to parse out what people might popularly think versus what is. Thank you for clarifying that because I'm very specifically not saying they don't have any very clearly defined ideological goals that they would like to impose. They have a very clear vision for the country that they would like to impose on the entire country. And if they get in a position to do that via law, via passing laws through Congress, they will absolutely do this. I'm just saying right now, they don't because they don't have the Senate and they don't have the White House. So they're not going to pass those laws in Washington. So what they're doing right now, that's not going to lead to any national legislation. And they're not interested in like solving gun violence or that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. They have a very clear vision and they are advancing that vision and they're rapidly, aggressively advancing that vision. But right now, they're not doing it in Congress. In Congress, the most important function that this current Republican House majority serves is to obstruct any attempt to come up with any sort of national legislation that would safeguard American democracy. That's what they're doing. But the actual sort of ideological offensive happens on the state level. And that's where you actually see what you're describing, where Republicans generally are not nihilists. They're not just trying to burn the system down. They have a very specific vision and they're fully committed to it. That's why I'm saying don't focus too much on the house level on on that quote unquote chaos there, right? Because once you look at the state level, what you see is they're banning abortion and they want to control women by whatever reactionary measure they can come up with, even including like passing dress codes where now women legislators- Mississippi, right? Women lawmakers have to like- cover their arms or something. That's actually passed. They passed this. It's crazy. Criminalize LGBTQ people, install authoritarians of white nationalist education system, ban dissent, restrict voting rights, purge election commissions, criminalize protests. That's happening 
wherever Republicans are in charge, in all sort of Republican-led states, and these are not disparate actions, it's one political project. And again, they have been escalating that definitely since summer of 2020. And then again, like even just this year, it's not been that long, but there was a less than 48-hour period on like January 13 to January 14. Literally, like one week after Kevin McCarthy became House Speaker and everyone was like, how dangerous could they possibly be? It's just chaos agents. Again, this is like less than 48 hours. The Idaho Supreme Court, dominated by sort of reactionaries, required doctors to force women into C-sections or delivering the fetus so that they can tell the state that they did everything they could to save the fetus or whatever. Like completely like cruel and futile, just no medical reason to do that. Republicans in Wisconsin voted to allow conversion therapy. In Nebraska, they introduced a bill that would just criminalize trans people for just being out there in public, existing in public. In Michigan, right-wing activists completely defunded a town's library because the library refused to ban all, quote, genderqueer literature. And in North Dakota, uh, North Dakota introduced a bill that would ban all books from public libraries that include any depiction of trans or gay people. So this is just a random 48-hour period, January 13 to 14. It's not even a comprehensive collection. It's literally just what came across my radar. It doesn't even include the complete escalation of what Ron DeSantis is doing with his sort of anti-woke campaign in Florida. But that's precisely the point. Once you look beyond the quote-unquote chaos in Washington, what you see is the work not of nihilists, but of committed ideologues fully determined to impose their reactionary vision of what America should be on as many people as possible and to punish those who dare to deviate from that vision or, or dissent. That's what's happening. And then that's why I mentioned the Supreme Court earlier. Ideally, in a better world, the Supreme Court would step in and say, no, wait a minute, you can't do this. Stop this. They would stop these escalating attempts to undermine democracy and, and roll back civil rights. But in fact, the conservative reactionary majority on the court is doing the opposite. It's acting as the spearhead of this reactionary counter-mobilization. You have Republican-led states and communities. It's not just the state level, it's also the, the local level. Republican-led states and communities undermining democracy, entrenching white reactionary rule with or without the support of the majority of voters. And then the Supreme Court just says, yes, keep going. <laughs> and that's where the Republicans in Congress come in and where the House majority comes in, because all they have to do in this situation is to block any attempt to counter this via national legislation, because now there's not going to be any national legislation that would put a stop to all of this, because they have the House, they can block most of that. That is sort of the bigger picture that I think people need to look at instead of just focusing on Kevin McCarthy hugging Marjorie Taylor Greene and look at these chaos agents. I think that that is super helpful. And you answered several questions that I was going to ask you. I think that there is a lot to get into in what you said. I do think that they're not the chaos part, but I do think that there is something to Kevin McCarthy hugging Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't just a what the fuck moment. This is insane. To me, it's also let's get real. There is nothing moderate about any part of the GOP and anybody who is still telling themselves that this isn't a fully gutted party needs to wake up. What are your yeah, thoughts? On that? It was quite striking how McCarthy started his tenure as speaker. If you think back to this, it all happened on the second anniversary of the assault on the Capitol around midnight or so on January 6th. Maybe it was the 
very early hours of January 7, but it was basically right on the second anniversary of the assault on the Capitol. So the first things he, he did, right after he was elected, he took a selfie, all smiles, with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was so happy. And then in his first speech, in his new role as speaker, he railed against, quote, uh, the woke indoctrination in our schools, that sort of thing. And then in his first encounter with reporters, he praised Donald Trump for his support. And he emphasized that no one should doubt his influence, meaning his Trump's influence. And he basically said, in so many words, Donald, look, we finally did it. <laughs> we got the house. It was so shameless, which is like so many things that are happening right now. It's shocking, but not surprising. Like no one should be surprised by this, but it's still shocking, right, to actually see it. There was, of course, the tendency in mainstream media reporting to apply a framework of this was a conflict when McCarthy didn't have the votes to be elected. Oh, it's a conflict between a few quote unquote radicals and then a vast majority of more quote unquote moderate or reasonable or whatever Republicans. I mean, if there was ever a constellation that should have gotten people to resist such empty labeling radicals versus moderates, it's the fact that the way mainstream media reporting drew the lines actually put Marjorie Taylor Greene in the moderate camp because she was in the McCarthy camp, right? She was supporting McCarthy. That just can't be right. At that point, you should look at yourself and say, wait a minute, that can't be right. If the way I'm drawing the lines here puts Marjorie Taylor Greene in the moderate camp, by absolutely no definition of the term cannot be right. And you're right. I think what all of this is mostly a reminder of, it's indicative of how far the Republican Party has moved to the right. That's not a new development, right? It's been on this trajectory for a long time. But it's also this process has also accelerated recently, specifically in the Obama era, of course. But then once again, it accelerated after the mobilization of the mass protest in the wake of the George Floyd murder in, in the summer of 2020. I think this is what we should take away from this. Donald Trump is still a massive problem. And Kevin McCarthy very explicitly reminded everyone, hey, this guy's still here. But the main problem is not Trump. The main problem is the party that elevated him in the first place, the party that embraces and elevates far-right extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene and like Matt Gates. There is not going to be a return to quote-unquote normalcy now that all this speaker spectacle is over because there is no normal, or let me put it this way, this is the normal, right? The new normal in the Republican Party is a mixture of like fake populism, white reactionary grievance politics with a heavy dose of sort of right-wing conspiratorial stuff in there. And it's all in service of a political project of hierarchy maintenance, of maintaining traditional hierarchies of wealth, race, gender, religion. And Kevin McCarthy is not a moderate. He is Republican establishment, but establishment doesn't mean moderate in that party. It means that the GOP establishment is fully embracing the extremism as the party has moved so far to the right that yesterday's radical fringe is now firmly in the center of conservative politics. That is the takeaway here. The takeaway is not, oh, in the end, the establishment won over the radicals. No, the establishment is embracing the extremism. And those who were radical fringe just yesterday have moved to the center of conservative politics. And that's extremely concerning. I both share your concern and think that the way that you just broke that down was really helpful and clarifying. There are some people who look at the mainstreaming of what I would say is a fascist movement. I think that you would use different words. And for this purpose, it doesn't matter. They look at that and they say, that is a signal that this is a party on its last breath. What do you say to the people who say that? 
are they done? I think two things. One is it is important to always emphasize the fact they do not have majority support for what they're trying to do. They do not have majority support for that reactionary vision that they want to impose on the country. That is important to make it very clear. If democracy falls in this country, it's not going to be because over 50% of the electorate are voting in a fascist dictator. That's not happening. But here's the problem. The people who say, oh, okay, so then we don't have to worry because we have the numbers or every year the electorate is moving away from the Republicans, which is true, by the way, to the extent that the electorate gets younger, more diverse. It is moving away from a party that is so entirely focused on the interests and sensibilities of conservative white people. Yes, the demographics are moving away from the Republican Party. But here's the problem. If America were a functioning democratic system in which if you get the majority of votes, you also get to hold political power, then the problem would be a lot less concerning. But that's not what America is. The American political system has all these anti-democratic distortions that consistently award a lot of power to a party that doesn't get and doesn't need 50% of the vote. So that's the first problem. It's just not the case that they need a majority of the electorate behind them. Because of the many anti-democratic distortions in the system, they don't. The second thing is, if you make the argument, they are pursuing a minoritarian project, which is true. And that can't work because at some point, they'll just have to accept that a growing majority is against them. Why do they have to accept that? The question of whether or not a minority can hold on to power, that entirely depends on how far the minority is willing to go to stay in power. It's true if the minority says, oh, look, if we're losing elections, we have to go. But that's already not the position of the Republican Party is already saying losing elections, not a thing. We're not losing elections. If we lose elections, then that's because well, there was fraud or too many of the wrong people have the right to vote. And we have to rectify that by taking that away or making it harder for them to vote. So that's already a problem. And then again, if you are willing to use a lot of oppressive measures, if you're willing to just not let the people who are not voting for you vote or make it harder for them to vote, or if push comes to shove, if you're willing to even endorse political violence, embrace political violence, then a minority can stay in power. Look at South African apartheid. Yes, at some point it crumbled in the late 80s, early 1990s. But that was after decades of a relatively small minority clinging to power by just oppression. Basically, the people who are saying, oh, the Republicans, they can't do this. We have the numbers and the demographics are so bad for them. Basically, what you're saying then is you're saying, I don't think the Republican Party would go so far as to use oppressive measures to stay in power, anti-democratic oppressive measures. And then I would tell you, where is the evidence that they wouldn't do that? Because I've seen a lot of evidence that they're absolutely willing to do that. So again, this whole, they will not go that far. That's the most dangerous idea out there. All the evidence we've had is that they're absolutely going that far. That's how we should think about this stuff and not rely on ideas of they will not go that far because they absolutely will. They will, they have, they are, all of those. I wanted to return to something that you had started talking about, where I don't know if it was first on in a Twitter thread that you wrote or on your podcast, but 
you were talking about that it's not just power for power's sake, but without any ideological mm-hmm. coherence. And you were directing people's attention, in fact, just in our conversation, to look to wherever and whenever they have power and what they do with that, that they are brutally enforcing and advancing a very clearly dangerous, I would say, fascistic, theocratic ideology. And you alluded to him already in this conversation, but one of the people that I think exemplifies that is Ron DeSantis and what he is doing in his little fascist laboratory that is Florida. And he's continuing to be a rising star in the GOP. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see going on with Ron DeSantis and his continued rise. Since the midterms specifically, we've had so much talk about Ron DeSantis being the new guy on the right for the Republican Party, which, by the way, I I will say, I find all this Donald Trump is done and like... So wrong. Yes, that is very wrong. Like as of right now, again, we're talking January 23rd, Donald Trump is still the favorite. He's still the front runner. Yeah, clearly. I mean, he's clearly the favorite. If you look at where his support comes from, how strong his numbers still are with non-college educated Republican voters. People seem to think that in 2015-16, he had like 100% support from Republicans or whatever. No, his support always came from non-college educated voters. And then that was enough to get him through these primaries where you don't need 50% of the vote. You just need more than any other one contender. He's been weakened. That is true. He's not at his apex, but he's still the favorite. But DeSantis has emerged as the one sort of challenger, I guess. And that has then led specifically sort of quote unquote moderate, never Trump conservative accommodators to say, oh, DeSantis is, that would be good. That would be um, so much better than Trump. He is like a quote unquote normal conservative or normal Republican politician and lefties liberals should just stop with the hysteria. Here's the thing about DeSantis. He has an actual track record. We don't have to speculate in a vacuum about what kind of guy Ron DeSantis is. Just look at what's been going on in Florida. And the fact is that under his leadership, Florida has been at the forefront of the reactionary attempts to roll back the post-1960s right revolution and mobilize the state against all kinds of dissent from a white nationalist understanding of America. And he is actually escalating his assault on public education and on academic freedom specifically. There's been some really good reporting in January already about this. He keeps pushing his Stop Woke Act, which he signed in the spring, I think. It was actually declared illegal and unconstitutional by a federal court in November. And the census just doesn't care. They just keep pushing this. They're targeting the remaining more liberal institutions. They're just installing these sort of right-wing reactionaries as trustees and board members and whatever, these remaining liberal institutions. And I think DeSantis' position on speech is actually really, really extreme. The government of Florida is explicitly saying there is no such thing as academic freedom or freedom of speech. Speech is only permitted as long as it does not contradict the edicts of the ruling party. That is their official position in Florida. It's really, really extreme. It's entirely consistent with what all authoritarian leaders think of education and free speech and and academic freedom, which is that it doesn't exist. Whatever is considered quote-unquote woke in Florida is being perched, is being censored, is being banned. I want to just implore people, just pay attention 
day after day after day, the news coming out of Florida. Every day, there's something about books being banned here. Now they've just decided that African-American studies is too woke. So that's not going to fly at Florida and public education institutions anymore. It's crazy. That stuff is crazy. It's really not like rocket science or like there's nothing cunning going on. There's nothing secret going on. It's so out in the open. It's so aggressive. I know people want to discuss this whole, oh, is he worse than Trump? I think it's just a wrong question. Just look at this guy on the merits. It's really, really, really bad what's happening there. And if Republicans want to tell you, oh, but he's just a normal Republican, then that doesn't tell you anything about Ron DeSantis being normal or not dangerous. It just tells you how radical the normal is in this Republican party. If that is normal, if they want to tell us, you liberals and lefties, you got to relax a little bit. He's just a normal Republican politician. What I'm seeing is a full-on assault on anything that dares to deviate and dissent from a white nationalist understanding of America's past or present. Well, then you're telling me who you are, right? That's what's happening here. In living color, it's so sinister the way that DeSantis's Department of Ed went about banning the AP course, saying that it was... I forget the exact phrasing, but went against the Florida law and lacked educational value. No educational you know? value, yes. And I mean, what a obscene, dehumanizing, contemptuous stand against Black folk. It's disgusting. In one breath, he talks about how the quote unquote Stop Woke Act is against state-sanctioned racism. Meanwhile, it's a mechanism to enforce white supremacy. If it was only asked backwards, like that would be enough, but it goes so deeper and farther than that. Let's not discuss DeSantis in a vacuum. He has an established track record, and his track record is deeply illiberal and anti-democratic. It is deeply illiberal and anti-democratic on speech issues, on free speech. It is deeply anti-democratic and illiberal on sort of civil liberties where he has been on the forefront of the attacks on LGBTQ groups, this whole don't say gay bill stuff. He's also been on the forefront of the assault on voting rights. It is true that he has not actively participated in Trump's coup attempt in 2020, but he has absolutely no problem just trying to take away voting rights from groups he doesn't like or make it much harder for people to vote. It's just a deep disrespect for the most basic political right that all democracies depend on. Trump is still there. He's still a major problem. And whatever you want to say about the Sanders, it cannot get to the point where someone says something like, oh, I'd rather have Trump. No, no, no. Look, Trump back in the White House is the end of democracy, democratic self-government, all that. But the point is, we need to make the case against Trump without making the case for DeSantis. There are people on sort of the center-right, moderate conservatives who want to tell us, oh, well, look, your only choice, it's either going to be Trump or DeSantis, so you have to make a choice. And if you don't want Trump, then you have to be pro-DeSantis. I just reject those at the parameters of the debate. It might get to the point where Republican-leaning voters, conservative voters, if they insist on voting Republican, whatever, they will have to make that choice in electoral terms. But from where we're speaking now, analytically, and as sort of in terms of diagnosing the problem, it's just not helpful to pretend, 
oh, we have to like either be pro-Trump or pro-Decentes. No, I'm very much anti both of them. And we can make the case against Trump without making a pro-Decentes camp because Decentism is very much Trumpism without Trump. And there is a debate to be had about is that more or less dangerous than Trumpism with Trump? There is this argument that the less dangerous people will say there are certain things about Trump's personality that are specifically dangerous. And by the way, that is true. Guy is crazy. Like yes, you, a lunatic, yeah, right? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So that is not great. You don't want that guy in charge. The other argument, the argument that says, but actually there's something more dangerous about dissenters would say, yes, but a Trumpism that is slightly more competent because it has someone in charge who's not a complete lunatic mm -hmm. um, and actually knows how to mobilize the coercive power of the state, which Trump, he doesn't care about figuring out any of that stuff. But the Santos is demonstrating in Florida that he is very much willing and he knows how to mobilize the coercive power of the state. And so there might be something more effective in that sense. Okay, fine, have that debate. But again, at the end of the day, you cannot come out in like making the case against Trump by making a pro-Decentis camp or making the case against Decentis by making a pro-Trump camp. It's bad. The takeaway needs to be that this is really bad. And if this is the new normal in the Republican Party, then maybe that's a big problem with this party. Exactly. I wanted to close out our discussion by asking, what is the question people need to be asking more of? And why do they need to be asking it? As people look at the shit show that is politics right now, both at mm -hmm. the state level and within the halls of power in the national government with the fascists not falling back. What do people of conscious need to be asking themselves and thinking about in this moment that too many people aren't asking right now? One thing that I still see too much of is this sort of clinging to the idea that there's something intrinsically stable about American democracy because it's, I don't know, old and consolidated or whatever. If there's one myth about the history of American democracy, it's this idea that America is this old, stable, consolidated 250-year democracy. Whatever we're facing right now will not, that will not bring a democracy down. That's just nonsense. Um, there's nothing old or stable or consolidated about the kind of democracy that America has only been since maybe the 1960s, which is a multiracial, pluralistic democracy, not just a white man's democracy. The kind of democracy that existed in this country, well, since the founding in the late 18th century, was a white man's democracy. America has only had a claim to be anything but a white man's democracy, meaning a proper sort of multiracial somewhat egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy since maybe the 1960s. And it's never really gotten there, but it's sort of taken a major step forward in the 1960s with the civil rights revolution that unfolded from the 1960s onwards. But there's never been anything stable about this. There was never a consensus around this. The country has literally been shaped and dominated since the 1960s by whether or not that attempt to make this democracy into an egalitarian, multiracial, pluralistic democracy, whether that should be allowed to continue or whether that is something that needs to be turned back. And, and again, like that's the political conflict right now. Just get away from this nonsense about 
stable democracy and like these exceptionalist ideas about America is having this sort of gloriously stable democratic past, which somehow inoculates the country and immunizes the country against sort of authoritarian onslaughts. That's just not a thing. Forget it. I want to thank you, Thomas, for coming and sharing your expertise, your perspective, your insight, and your time with us. I want to double check what's in the show notes. So we're going to put a link to your pod, your Substack, your Twitter. That's Is it. there anything else you want people to go to? No, that's no, fine. Okay. I'm still begrudgingly on Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I do. That's yeah. the state a lot of us are in. I know, I know. But I still think if there's any value in the kind of perspective analysis commentary that people like me can offer... And unfortunately, as of right now, Twitter yeah, is still is how you reach people where people yeah. find you. So begrudgingly still on Twitter, but I started a Substack newsletter, got the podcast. So if people want to keep up with what I have to say, those are the ways to do that. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. As always, we want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests, share with us your art or lend a skill. We hope to do our first episode dedicated to your questions really soon, so send them our way. You can tweet me at Sam B. Goldman, drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org, hit us up on the Mastodon thing, see the show notes, or leave a voicemail by visiting anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and hitting the message button. If you sent me an email, wrote me something, reached out on the socials or whatnot this past week and I didn't get back to you, I was still recovering from COVID and you will hear from me this week. Thank you. Want to support the show? It's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. You can also literally put it on your forehead with our Refuse Fascism beam. Available at refusefascism.org and start the convo. Ship in to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. Whether you can get $3 or $30, it all makes a difference in producing and promoting this independent weekly podcast. So thank you for your generosity. Give today by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.